0: Well, good morning, everybody. And it's good to see everybody here this morning. Uh, I want to welcome all those uh, here who might be visitors and just say that we're sure glad to see you. Whatever it is that brings you here today, if you're in the area on a, and, and going to be here on a regular basis, uh, love to be able to get to know you better and, and to uh, uh, enjoy fellowship with you uh, as often as we can. So, uh, please turn to Revelation chapter three. We're in Revelation chapter three this morning and, uh, put this picture up on the screen. This is, I, I don't have any anticipation that anybody would know who this is, by the way. This is James Henry Hammond. Anybody ever heard that name? Yeah, it's not a real common name. And I'll tell you, I'm good to see all the kids headed out that way. Um, because, uh, not just because we have a bunch of kids. I'd love to see the bunch of kids. But the story I'm about to tell you is very disturbing. Okay? I think it's appropriate for this morning's message, but just be warned in advance. Uh, there's some intense stuff going on here. Okay. James Hammond was a plantation owner, a slave owner. At one point, a United States representative. A United States senator and a governor of South Carolina. During the years, the United States practiced slavery. He was also a man who abused his power to satisfy his own sexual desires. In 1839, he purchased an 18-year-old slave named Sally and her year-old baby daughter Louisa. He made Sally his concubine, had many children by her. Then when Sally's daughter Louisa turned 12, he made her his concubine and fathered children by her. Yeah. Yeah. Not content with the sexual abuse of his slaves, he also sexually abused his sister's four daughters, ages 13 to 18, for more than two years. His evil caught up with him when his brother-in-law threatened to public reveal the sexual assaults on his daughters if Hammond didn't resign from political office. But there is evidence that suggests that Hammond kept his brother-in-law silent, at least for a time, by pointing out that full revelation of his own wickedness would be as damaging to the man's daughters as it would be to Hammond himself eventually the truth did become known and as a result those four young women never married because no respectable man would have any of them as a wife hammond's own wife catherine left him because of his activities with louisa though hammond blamed his mother-in-law for catherine's departure coincidentally during those years many of his livestock died as a result of disease epidemics astonishingly hammond was so self-deceived that he couldn't see the error of his ways. After many of his slaves and livestock had died from disease, this is what he wrote in his diary. It crushes me to the earth to see everything of mine so blasted around me. Negroes, cattle, mules, hogs, everything that life around me, that has life around me seems to labor under some faded malediction. Great God, what have I done? Never was a man so cursed. What have I done or omitted? To do, to deserve this fate. No one, not one, exercises the slight indulgence to me. Nothing is overlooked, nothing forgiven. Those were his own words about his situation there. There's a word, I think, that describes the attitude and perspective of James Henry Hammond. Actually, there's probably many words. You could find more than what I'm going to say right now, but there's one that stands out in my mind this morning, and that word is delusional. Hammond was not simply unrepentant. His bitterness concerning how others treated him reveals that he had convinced himself that he had done nothing wrong. And for all his troubles, someone else was to blame. He blamed other people. He blamed his health. He even blamed God, saying this, Wherever I look around me, I see a wall of fire. Wherever I place my foot, the earth crumbles. God hates me. But James Henry Hammond never blamed himself. Instead, he said this about himself, describing himself in this way, who never willfully harmed or desired to harm a human being, who never wronged one that I know of. That was his own self-assessment. Man's in denial. Uh, In the modern vernacular, we might wonder just what it was that James Henry Hammond was smoking, right? Okay? (laughs) Well... As we read Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22 this morning, we're going to look at the church in Laodicea. And the Christians in Laodicea had themselves convinced that they were exactly where they needed to be, doing exactly what they needed to be doing. They believed that they were self-sufficient, able to handle every circumstance. In a way, they had become a group of Christians who did not think they needed Christ. Is that an oxymoron? Is that a contradiction? I think it is. But they were deluded And to this church, Jesus offers his harshest words of criticism. There is no praise for the church in Laodicea, the church that I call the delusional church. Let's read Revelation 3, verses 14 through 22 together. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor Nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may become rich. And white garments, so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I, Salve, to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame... And sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, so in our series of messages here about the seven churches, actually about the entire book of Revelation, but so far our focus has been on these seven churches. Here again is the map showing the locations of those seven churches. Here's Laodicea down here. Again, we've done kind of a roughly clockwise, some sort of pseudo circular. Uh, uh, region here. John writing from the island of Patmos to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia. Now finally down here to Laodicea. Laodicea is located about 50 miles from Philadelphia, about 95 miles from Ephesus. But it was located at the crossroads of two major trade routes. One of those went this way through Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and one of them came this way you can see these river valleys here right and there's kind of a pass here I suppose and then uh, this river valley here that brings you up from Ephesus up to Laodicea and uh, that one from Ephesus extended on toward the east into all the rest of Asia Minor the city was home to roughly a hundred thousand people probably at the time John wrote this there was a temple dedicated to Apollo there laodicea was also the seat of emperor worship there were other various gods and goddesses that they worshiped in laodicea Uh, and this stadium here is one of the few that remains in that area one source claims that this was 1200 feet long as long you can't even see the whole thing here as long as four football fields and of course, that would have been a major source of entertainment, a major attraction there for people in Laodicea. They would have races of various kinds and contests there, uh, much like modern sports, I suppose, except without all the advertising, far as I know. All right. In this aerial view of the city, you can see the long street here with columns on either side. I mean, it just extends clear through the whole city, it seems. And uh, this was called Syria Street. Many, many shops lined both sides of this street. Laodicea was a very rich city in its time, due in large part to the commerce taking place on this street. Now, it is said, you might remember from our other messages if you were here, it said about the earthquake that damaged Philadelphia and Sardis in 17 AD. Laodicea was also damaged in that earthquake and was also rebuilt with funds supplied by the Roman government. But, In 60 AD, Laodicea was hit with another earthquake. And this time, even though Rome offered to help them rebuild, the city said no. They said they could handle the cost of rebuilding on their own. That's how wealthy this city had become as a result of trade that took place there, among other things. Well, let's talk about it. The the vast wealth of Laodicea was accumulated primarily through three major industries. One was the production of a very fine and rare black wool. This wool was highly sought after, as were garments that were made from it, not just in that region, but throughout the empire. Laodicea was also a banking center for the province of Asia Minor. The city was so rich from its other businesses that it was able to coin its own money. It accumulated enough gold and enough reserve that they were able to coin their own money. These coins were accepted as currency throughout the rest of the Roman world. And finally, Laodicea was the location of a major medical school known worldwide. I don't know if this is the exact location. I don't know if they figured that out yet, but it's something like this. But Laodicea is where they produced something that they called Phrygian powder. That sounds like something you'd find on late night TV today, I suppose. But it was used to make a very effective eye salve. It is said that this salve was able to cure or prevent many eye diseases up to and including blindness, at least from some causes. Okay? So that's what Laodicea was like. That's the environment there. And apparently the church in Laodicea didn't have any issues with persecution, none that we have recorded. And they weren't poor, like the Christians in Smyrna, not financially speaking, anyway. The Christians in Laodicea were as wealthy as the rest of the population. Jesus doesn't take the Christians in Laodicea to task for not holding to sound doctrine, yet somehow they weren't being ostracized by the rest of society. They were able to do business. They were able to fit in. They were able to be part of the group. Well, let's start in verse 14 and see what the problem really was then in Laodicea. Jesus uses three expressions to describe himself as he speaks to the church in Laodicea. And the first of these is the Amen. Now, we are... Most of it, by the way, I think that that ought to be the first words that we ought to teach our little kids, okay? Teach, teach them amen. That way they can shout off in, in, in church all they want, right? No, they can't anyway. I'm just kidding. I, I, love, I love hearing the little kids. I just think it'd be cool to have some looking going, amen, you know, all the time. All right. We're most familiar with the word amen as used to end a prayer. Now, why do we do that? I mean, you know, we, we do that. Why do we do that, right? Well, we might say, well, because they did that in the Bible. And that would be true. Jesus ended what we call the Lord's Prayer with the word Amen. Paul often used the word Amen at the end of his prayers in his letters. But all that does is transfer the question. Now we have to ask, well, why did they end their prayers with Amen, right? Well, this word Amen is the same word that Jesus often used when addressing his followers as he taught them. In the King James Bible, we often hear Jesus say, Verily, verily, I say unto you, or even verily, verily, I say unto thee, right? King James. In the New International Version, it would be rendered, very truly, I tell you. And while the New American Standard and English Standard Versions say, truly, truly, I say to you, the word is amen. The Greek word has its roots in Hebrew, actually. And, and it means Truly. We end our prayers with this word to indicate that what we have just prayed is our true desire. And also to ask for God's own approval of what we have prayed. Because prayer is about submission. And we're not going to him to dictate terms. We're going to him to try to find his heart. We're going to him to try to find what he wants to have take place. And so we might be saying, by saying amen, we might be saying, this is really what I am asking of you, God, and may it be what you desire to bring about. Well, Jesus describes himself with this word, I think, because he wants to emphasize that he is the one who determines how things are supposed to be. The church in Laodicea had a false view of what it was supposed to be. They had taken what the church was supposed to be in the world and turned it into something else. So Jesus asserts his authority as he corrects their error. Then Jesus calls himself the faithful and true witness. Now this is very similar to the description of Jesus given in Revelation 1.5, where he is called the faithful witness. Jesus presents himself as a contrast to the church in Laodicea. They had not been faithful witnesses for him in that city. They had not been true to his desire and will for them. No doubt, they had convinced themselves that they were the church as it was supposed to be, but they were delusional. And Jesus has come to set them straight. The third expression Jesus uses to describe himself here is the beginning of the creation of God. Be careful when we reach a, a, a statement like that. This does not mean that Jesus was the first created thing or that Jesus was the first created being. It means that he is the origin or the source of all that has been created. Now this echoes what we find in John chapter 1 verse 3 where it says this about Jesus. All things came into being through him and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. When you read Genesis, when you read Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, and it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, right? And, and uh, it says that the Spirit of God moved over the face of the waters. We see God the Father and God the Spirit. Both John 1 and Colossians 1 talk about Jesus being present and active in that process of creation. Colossians 1.16 says it this way, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now, we say all that, but we might still wonder, so why would Jesus use this description of himself to the church in Laodicea? I think one reason is that the Christians there should have been familiar with this description of Jesus already. And so he's identifying himself in a way that they can uh, know who's speaking. We find in Colossians four sixteen that the apostle Paul told the Colossian church to share their letter with the church in Laodicea, and we just read that quote from Colossians chapter one about Jesus being the one who created all things. They should have recognized this expression then as something that described Jesus. Another reason I think Jesus described himself like this is that the church in Laodicea had gotten so far off track, they needed to start over. You ever do that? You start working on something, get in the middle of a project, and we just got to scrap this and start over because we are so far out of bounds here, it's just not even funny, right? And so we go back to the beginning, and we look at the plans, and we start over. I think that's what needed to happen here. The church in Laodicea needed to get back to the original source because it was unrecognizable compared to what the church should have been. Jesus is the one who sets the pattern in all of creation. And Jesus is the one who sets the pattern for the church. How presumptuous it would be for us to take the church and try to turn it into something else once Jesus has established it. We need to let the church be what Jesus designed it to be. Now you go on to verse 15 here like he says to all the churches, Jesus knows what's going on in Laodicea. And this is the issue. This is what he tells them. This is the first criticism he has of them. Well, this is the first thing he says. They were neither cold nor hot, but Jesus wished that they were either one or the other. Now, a lot of times, you'll either hear people talk about it or read what they've written about it, and those that are speaking or those that are writing, they've taken the word hot... And they have understood that to mean spiritually enthusiastic, while the word cold to them means spiritually distant. And while we use those words in that way sometimes, I don't think this is what Jesus is saying, and here's why. There were two other cities near Laodicea that help us understand what I think Jesus means here. Okay, There's Hierapolis right here, the yellow dot uh, on, uh, above, and then Colossae, the yellow dot below here. Hierapolis is about 6 miles to the north. Colossae, uh, these dots aren't placed entirely accurately, probably about 11 miles or so to the southeast. Okay. Uh, Colossae, by the way, is the church, or is the location of the church where Paul sent the letter to the Colossians. Okay, So that's, that's Colossae very close by. Now, at Hierapolis, there were a number of, of hot springs, actually still are. This is pictures from modern times, obviously. We can't go back with the camera and take pictures of when John was there. So there were a large number of, and are a large number of hot springs there. Water temperatures range from about 95 degrees all the way up to boiling. Okay? A little like Yellowstone Park in, in that regard, Okay, because this is a region of earthquakes and volcanic activity. So that's where some of this stuff is coming from. People would come there to Hierapolis from all over the world to bathe and to soak in these waters because of their perceived healing properties. Of course, you have to be careful, right? You know what you call the guy who got in the wrong pool? Stew, Stew. yeah, very good. Okay, that's bad. I'm sorry, that's just a bad joke. The point is that the hot springs of Hierapolis were beneficial and healing. I'll explain it to you later. Okay, yeah, yeah. (laughs) My kids are all going, Mr. Larson, that's not funny yet. Huh? I, I got it. I got it. Okay. On the other hand, that's Hierapolis. On the other hand, Colossae, and I think those are some of the ruins of Colossae in the foreground. They haven't really been excavated much. They're still working on some of this. Uh, Colossae was situated near the bottom of Mount Cadmus. Its peak is over 9,000 feet. I think we'd feel pretty at home uh, back up in these in these mountains here. They're kind of like ours, it looks like. And I think that's Mount Cadmus there. Um, Oh, 9,000 feet snow there. The water that came down to Colossae from these mountains was cold and pure, healthy and refreshing and great for quenching thirst. I was at the school this week, and uh, Bill came into the kitchen, I think. We were talking about the water. And Bill told me, he says, this is the water that we have at the ranch. He says, this is the best water I've ever had anywhere. Yeah. How many of you have ever been to Great Falls? How many of you drank the water in Great Falls? Yeah, not the best water you ever had anywhere. Scotts Bluff, Nebraska, even. I don't know what it's like on the Garing side of the river. I don't remember that. it the same on that side? Man, don't, tr- oh, it's, it's nasty, okay? And, and Great Falls is not, not my favorite. Now you go on over a little bit further to Lewistown. Boy, they got good water over there. So Colossae, that's what Colossae was all about. Well, Laodicea is somewhere in between. There wasn't a good source of water in Laodicea. They had to get their water from somewhere else. Now the top picture shows the remains of water pipes used to bring cold water into the city for miles away, right? Well, you know what happens after miles, it being in the pipes, it's not cold anymore, right? The bottom picture shows the remains of water pipes used to bring hot water into the city for miles away. These pipes here, look at this one, it's completely blocked closed. All the mineral content, this one's got a good head start on it, all the mineral content that was in that water that they were piping into Laodicea just eventually blocked that pipe off completely. The cold water wasn't cold anymore. The hot water wasn't hot anymore. And the, it, was a, it was a running joke of people from other places about the water in Laodicea because the water there tasted terrible. Sometimes it was so bad that people got sick from drinking it. You get the picture, I think. Well, this is the issue in Laodicea. Jesus isn't saying, well, I wish you were either for me or against me. Why would he want anybody to be against him? Right? He's not saying that. He's saying, I wish you were either cold and refreshing, satisfying the spiritual thirst of the people in Laodicea, or I wish you were hot and soothing, healing the spiritual ailments of the people in Laodicea. Instead, you're lukewarm. And you taste bad, like the disgusting water of your city. I know, I'm reading a lot into that, but I don't think that's far off the mark. I don't think it's at all off the mark. Does anybody know what an emetic is? E-M-E-T-I-C, emetic? How many of you moms, they're uh, carried around a little bottle of Ipecac in your diaper bag, okay? You guys ever do that? No? Well, when we were growing our kids, that's what they told us to do, okay? I'm pretty sure we had a little bottle of Ipecac in there. Anybody have that? No. Yeah. The idea was this. If your child swallowed something poisonous or something that would make him sick, he'd give him the Ipecac, and what would he do? Yeah, he'd throw up right there. I, aren't you glad I don't have a picture for that? Yeah, not going there. Why am I telling you this? Because most of our modern translations of the, of the scriptures have Jesus saying, because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. Old King James gets a little closer with the word spew, but they spell it weird, S-P-U-E. I don't know what that's about. Anyway, the Greek word is "msi," which comes from "emeto." This is where we get the word emetic from. Jesus literally says to the church in Laodicea, you make me vomit. Now, that's not very nice, I know. But it is the truth. The church in Laodicea had compromised their usefulness to the point where they couldn't be part of Jesus anymore. He was going to expel them from his body. This is so extreme. But it is absolutely essential that we get how serious this situation is. Now, see, this isn't even like the church in Pergamum that was straddling the fence, trying to have it both ways one foot in the church, one foot in the world. This is a church, Laodicea is a church that doesn't even know where the fence is anymore, and they don't really care. They think they're fine. We're fine. We're exactly where we need to be. They weren't, but that's what they thought. They were delusional. Okay? And so that's the next thing that Jesus tells them here, is that they have deceived themselves. The church in Laodicea had this view of themselves, that they were rich, and that they didn't need anything from anybody, and that included Jesus. Now remember, this is the wealthy city that refused Rome's assistance to rebuild after the earthquake of 60 AD. Now their attitude was, we're fine here, we've got this, we're good. No, don't need any help over here. Well, that was the attitude of the church in Laodicea. They believed they had everything they needed. They believed that they were self-sufficient. But Jesus' perspective is different. Let me ask you this. When your perspective is different than Jesus' perspective, which one do we care more about? Yeah, I'm thinking we better be caring more about Jesus' perspective, okay? Because it's going to be the right one. It's going to be the accurate one. Well, Jesus' perspective here on Laodicea is different. He told them that they were actually wretched. Instead of self-sufficient and you know, strong and all those good things, they were wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. All the negative things you could apply to somebody in that situation that would, that would be in contrast to what they thought about themselves. These Christians had become the salt of the earth that wasn't salty anymore. They'd become the light of the world that was hidden under a basket. And worst of all, they didn't even know it. Why? Because they're delusional. Right. Okay. Well, the good news is, the good news is that all is not yet lost in Laodicea. If they would see themselves the way Jesus sees them, there's hope that they can still turn this around. But there are some things that they need. And these are obvious references to the things that the people of Laodicea in general, and I think even the people in the church, were most proud of. And in these things, Jesus tells the Christians there to get the things that they really need from him. First, he tells them to get from him gold refined by fire so that they may become rich. Here's the thing. Laodicean Christians were financially secure. And so many times, and today especially, especially, you turn on the TV much, especially those religious broadcasts. I'm not going to say they're all like this. and I'm not going to say they're all bad. I don't believe that. But way too many of them are teaching you that financial security and wealth is a sign of God's favor and blessing on you. And as long as you're doing what God wants you to do, then he's going to pour out money in your direction. The health, wealth, happiness philosophy. I don't buy it for a second. The Laodicean Christians were financially secure, but they were spiritually bankrupt. The gold of which Jesus speaks here, the metaphor, he's talking about genuine faith in him that shapes and guides the lives of all those who sincerely follow him. The Laodiceans had faith in themselves. What they really needed was faith in Jesus. And Jesus told them to buy white garments so that they could be clothed and that their Shameful nakedness could be hidden. The Christians in Laodicea, again, very materially minded. They were very proud of their black wool garments, but Jesus said they were naked. Now Jesus has used the illustration of white garments before, back in verse 5 of chapter 3 when he was talking to Smyrna. White garments symbolize the righteousness that is found only in Jesus. If righteousness was even a consideration for the Laodicean Christians... As, far as they were concerned, it was their own righteousness. We know that's really no righteousness at all. Jesus told them to get their righteousness from him. And Jesus described the Christians there as blind. Laodicean salve was great for physical ailments of the eyes, but it couldn't do anything for their spiritual blindness. You might remember from Matthew 23, 24, that Jesus called the scribes and Pharisees blind guides, referring to their spiritual blindness. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul said that it's Satan who is the one who blinds the minds of the unbelieving so they can't see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. I think the Christians in Laodicea had completely lost sight of who Jesus is and what Jesus wants. Jesus told them to buy eye salve from him so they could be cured of their spiritual blindness. And he told them that they needed discipline. Now I think we all understand the need, in theory at least, hypothetically, the need for discipline, even if we don't always enjoy it, rather than talk a lot about discipline here, because we do understand that process. Let's focus on the other half of Jesus' statement. Jesus said, Those whom I... Love, I reprove and discipline. Yeah. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. The church in Laodicea needed discipline. The Christians there were getting discipline. Why? Because Jesus loved them. Jesus loves the church. Jesus loves Christians. Jesus loves you. Which means that he will discipline those who need it when they need it. Now, even though he told those in Laodicea that they made him sick, that's really what he was saying, you make me sick, he still loved them and wanted them to return to having a right relationship with him. And he told them to be zealous. Now, do you think it's a coincidence because when he, when he uses that word zealous there, do you think it's a coincidence that he uses a word that has the same root as the word hot in verse 16, where he told them that they were neither hot nor cold? You're neither hot nor cold. You don't have any zeal for me. I don't think it's a coincidence. They needed some enthusiasm, but not for their own supposed self-sufficiency. They needed enthusiasm for the sufficiency of Christ. When you trust in yourself to be all that you need, you'll never have enough. When you trust in Christ to be all that you need, you'll always have an abundance. And like Jesus told all the churches except for Smyrna and Philadelphia, he told the church in Laodicea to repent. There's going to be some changes that need to take place here. But this is the good news. Instead of saying you're done, you're toast, sorry, it's over. He tells them, you need to repent. There's still an opportunity here for these people to return to Jesus, to follow him in truth, and to be in fellowship with him again. Which is really what verse 20 is all about. Now so many times, and I know, and I've probably done it myself, so many times, verse 20 is used to refer to evangelism. The conversion of those who don't yet know Christ, who've never had that relationship with Him, right? When He says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone answers, I will come in, and I will dine with him, and he will dine with me, right? And we're talking. We, we, a lot of times we apply that to evangelism. That's a nice picture. And I know that Jesus does desire for those who don't know Him to come to Him for salvation and forgiveness and eternal life, but that's not the application here. Jesus is telling the Christians in Laodicea, who'd already come to know him, who'd already had that relationship with him. He's telling the Christians in Laodicea, you have closed the doors of your hearts to me, and I'm on the outside. But I want to be back on the inside, and I want you to be in fellowship with me again. And what he's telling them is, he's telling them they need to be reconciled again to Jesus, brought back into that relationship. Well, as to all the churches, they're the promise to those who overcome. And here's where we get to peek at the end of the book to see a little of what's to come as we continue our study. So if you turn to Revelation 22, if that's convenient for you, if you got that there. If not, I'll have it. Uh, I, I won't have it on the screen, but I'll read it out loud. Revelation 22. And if you have it open, you can read along with me as I read verses 3 through 5. Talking about heaven talking about eternity with God this is what this is part of the description of that state in Revelation 22 verse 3 there will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his bond servants will serve him they will see his face his name will be on their foreheads and there will no longer be any night They will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them. Look at the last part of verse 5. And they will reign forever and ever. What an amazing promise. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, Jesus says. An eternity of reigning triumphantly with Christ awaits those who overcome the delusion of self-sufficiency in this life and who trust in Christ for every need, following Him faithfully on His terms. And it's not like Jesus is asking us to do something that He didn't do. Even before His crucifixion, in John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus told His followers to take courage because He had overcome the world. Now, we might say, well, how? I mean, the cross hadn't even happened yet. Well, he overcame by not sinning. He overcame by teaching and upholding the truth. He overcame by being obedient and faithful. And he showed us the way to overcome by being an overcomer. And we get to the end of the chapter, verse 22, like we've read so many times with these churches so far, he he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not just audibly let it land in his ear and, and touches you know, his parts that, mechanical parts that make up the hearing process. No, not that. To hear, to understand, to apply, right? And I have a question. I'm going to assume that there's something here, but I'm going to ask the question, what did you need to hear in today's message? I mean, there's however many there are here. You're all individuals. And we might say, well, there's as many different answers as there are people here. That's possibly true, but I, I want to break it down a little simpler than that. In light of what we've discussed in this passage, I think there are potentially four kinds of people here today. And I'm not saying all of these are present. I'm saying they all could be present. Now first, there are those who are Christians get it. Right? You're not relying on yourself as though you have everything you need independently of Christ. To you I say let the letter to Laodicea be a warning concerning some place you never want to go. Don't let materialism or personal accomplishment or comfort ever become a substitute for your dynamic faith and life in Jesus Christ. Second more of the group that this letter was addressed to. and Again, I'm not saying it, all these people are here, but you have to determine whether it applies to you or not. And the second group would be those, those who, people who are Christians, but who have deluded themselves about what Christian life is really all about. And they think that they're self-sufficient. People like that are wrapped up in their possession. They're wrapped up in their own agenda. They might claim that their faith is in Jesus, but really it's in themselves now if there's anyone like that here today and i'm not pointing fingers i'm not saying i'm just i'm just saying that that possibility exists if there's anybody like that here today i will say this that like the church in laodicea you have become lukewarm neither cold nor hot and frankly if that is you you're making jesus sick repent and seek the riches that Jesus has renew the enthusiasm you once had in submitting to him and in serving him the way he wants you to on his terms him being your sufficiency Well, the third group the third group would be those who are not Christians and who are content with that today's message I will say was not primarily evangelistic in nature still the truth about who Jesus is was presented here today if you don't understand what it all means that's one thing I get that let's have a conversation let's ask questions let's talk okay if you if you want to know and you don't understand let's let's discuss it but if you do understand and you choose to reject him please know that you are rejecting the only hope that you have Of finding true fulfillment and purpose in this life, as well as the only hope of finding anything good in the life to come. And there is a life to come. And finally, the fourth group there may be some here today who are not Christians yet, but you've come to understand who Jesus really is, you've come to understand why he needs to be your Lord and Savior you truly want to be reconciled with jesus you want to have fellowship with him both now and in eternity you're ready to repent or perhaps you've already repented of your sin you're ready to confess your faith in christ to other people and you're ready to be immersed into him for the forgiveness of your sins and i'd say for any who are at that point today please come forward as we stand and sing an invitation song.